Well, last week we were in Matthew chapter 12, verses 1 to 8, and we saw that Jesus claimed to be greater than David, greater than the temple, and a Lord of the Sabbath. And we saw that that was a claim really to be the Messiah, to be the ultimate anointed one, the prophet, priest, and king, the anointed one, the savior of really Israel and the world. And it was a claim that he was God. Jesus was claiming to be God. See, only God himself could be, or only God himself is, the Lord of the Sabbath. Now, as Jesus claimed that that day, he was obviously a man. He stood before the people that day as a man. Everyone who saw him knew him to be a man, but here he is claiming to be God. And so what we have in Jesus Christ is God in human flesh. And we've been studying Matthew for the past really two plus years. And for those of us who have kind of been in that study really the whole time, the claim that Jesus is making to be God is really no surprise to us. Matthew has told us time and time again in various ways that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, God the Son. And Matthew wants us, really, he wants us to know and understand who Jesus is. That's what he's telling us in this gospel. He wants us to know Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. But it's one thing to claim to be God, and it's another thing to show yourself to be God. You see, in in a sense, really, anyone could claim to be God. I, I could claim to be God. You could claim to be God. We could, especially it's easier to claim it if you're God, saying you're God in human flesh. It really doesn't make that much to be that claim. You know, if you can string a sentence together, you can say, I am Lord of the Sabbath. But in our text last week, Jesus made this extraordinary claim. But now today, in the text we're going to look at today, Jesus is going to back up that claim with an extraordinary proof that he is indeed the Lord of the Sabbath. See, to to claim to be one person in two natures is really quite the claim. One person, God the Son, two natures, both human and divine. And for most people to make such a claim, it would be just, it would be utterly ridiculous. Nobody would believe it. But Jesus, time and time again in this gospel, has shown himself to be no mere man. He spoke with authority and majesty in the Sermon on the Mount. He lifted our thoughts up to God and taught us to pursue perfection. He said, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. He taught us to be righteous, that God might be glorified through us. He taught us this righteous, God-glorifying, God-centered lifestyle. And the authority of his words matched by, it was matched by the authority of his actions. He healed all who came to him. He cast out demons. He commanded the weather. He forgave sins. You see, nobody could do what Jesus did or speak the way that he spoke unless God was with them. And God is not with people who claim to be God unless they are God. Now, in our text this morning, Jesus is going to prove that he is indeed Lord of the Sabbath. And he's going to back up his claim with actions, actions really that only God could do. And so let's read our text. Our text for this morning is is really Matthew 12, 9 to 14. But we're going to start reading at Matthew 12, starting at verse 1, and just kind of remember what we saw last week. 
So Matthew chapter 12, starting at verse 1, it says, At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful, or which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would, have not, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He went on from there and entered the, their synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him? He said to them, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out and it was restored healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Now, as we look at our text this morning, it it really has a number of purposes for us. It's a confirmation of Jesus' deity. And we should be convinced, as we look at this text, we should be convinced about this question, who is Jesus Christ? And we should see that he is indeed God the Son. Secondly, it's going to show us the increasing hostility against Jesus, which is really the, the whole point of chapters 11 and 12. The religious leaders aren't accepting Jesus' claim, and instead they're looking for a reason to accuse him. And this is really the first time in our gospel that we hear of a plot to kill Jesus Christ. And thirdly, and and really kind of indirectly, we're going to have this question about the Sabbath. What is permissible on the Sabbath? Which, Which really for us is probably better put this way, what was permissible on the Sabbath, since we're no longer under the law and Jesus has fulfilled the Sabbath and our rest is now found in him, there really no longer is a need for a Christian Sabbath. And so this is an opportunity then for us really to reflect on ourselves and our own hearts. You know, think about this morning, how is or what is your response to Jesus Christ? How have you been responding to his claim to be God? You know, are you more concerned about rule keeping, about religious works or about sacrifice? Or do you understand that God wants you to show mercy and to know his son? That's really what God wants from us, to to know Jesus Christ and to be merciful and loving to our fellow man. See, the Pharisees, they were, they were so set on keeping the law that they actually conspired to kill God's son when he, broke the, when he broke what they thought was the law. They would rather kill God than see their rules broken. And that's really the spirit of all religious hypocrisy. All of us really have a choice to make then. Either we accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we recognize him for who he is, we recognize his authority and we submit to him, or we reject him and resist him 
The Pharisees, they, they, they conspired to destroy him. Others try to ignore him or deny him or pretend he isn't there or, or do whatever they do so that they don't have to become a disciple of Jesus Christ. And so this text will, will force us to examine ourselves and our response to Jesus' rightful claim in our lives. And we're going to look at the text under four headings today. The first, we're going to call it the probe. The Pharisees ask a question. They probe Jesus. They want to accuse him of breaking the Sabbath. Secondly, we're going to see the point where Jesus explains the point of the Sabbath and what it's all about. Thirdly, we're going to see the proof and we see Jesus' authority to heal. And then fourth, we're going to see the plot. And it's the plot to kill Jesus in verse 14. And so the probe, the point, the proof, the plot. And so let's go number one. Let's look at the probe in verses 9 and 10. Verses 9 and 10 really set the scene for us. Verse 9 begins, it says, he went on from there. And it's kind of a, a vague reference to time and place. Luke is more specific in Luke 6, I think Luke 6, 6, he tells us that that um, it was on a different Sabbath that this happened, a different Sabbath than what we read in Matthew 12, 1 to 8. But really all three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, they put this together. This story kind of goes together. And so Jesus went on from there, verse 9, and he entered their synagogue. Now this is the fourth time we've seen this kind of unusual reference, their synagogue. Uh, it's, it's, it's their synagogue. It's not his synagogue. It's not Jesus' synagogue, although it, it probably was in Capernaum. It probably was where his home base was. It probably was his usual synagogue. But Matthew calls it, and Jesus calls it, not, not the synagogue, not a synagogue, which would be the more usual way of speaking about this. Matthew calls it their synagogue, which, which really separates Jesus from the whole synagogue system. And we saw this already in Matthew 4.23. It says there, uh, Matthew 4.23, he went throughout all Galilee teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. And then really the same verse repeated in Matthew 9.35, Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. We saw that again in Matthew 10 and verse 17, where Jesus says, beware of men, for they will deliver you over to, sorry, beware of men, for they will deliver you over to the, to courts. I really want to say the courts there. They, they're going to deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And then continuing in Matthew 2.10, so it's, it's their synagogue. There's a separation between Jesus and the synagogue. And then continuing in verse 10, and, and a man was there with a withered hand. A man was there in their synagogue with a withered hand. Now the ESV kind of, what, for whatever reason, smooths out the English here. The, the Greek text really says, and behold, and behold a man having a withered hand. And Matthew really likes to introduce stories with this kind of behold, and he, he kind of grabs our attention, makes the stories exciting. Behold, there's this man with a withered hand, and this, this withered hand, this, this word means that it's dried up or, or withered or dry, and it's most often used of land, like, like dry land, withered land. And, and what it means here is that in some way, this man's hand, this, 
This man's hand was deformed or paralyzed. And, and, and the word for hand sometimes means hand, but sometimes it means your whole forearm. And sometimes it's even used for the entire arm. And so something is wrong with this man's hand and with his arm. And we don't know exactly what, but it's, it's withered, it's dry, kind of like a dry tree or something. And it's, but it's obviously deformed. And everyone who came to the synagogue that day noticed or would have known that this man's hand was in some way deformed. And he's at the synagogue with Jesus. And then in verse 10, continuing, and they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the, on the Sabbath. And so they asked him a question. Now we find out who they are in verse 14. They are the Pharisees, the same people who accuse the disciples of doing what is not lawful in verse 2. Now that word lawful there is really a theme in this section of Matthew chapter 12. We've seen it already four times. Matthew 12 and verse 2, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Verse 4, Jesus responds how David entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. That words again in verse 10, they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And then Jesus again in verse 12, so it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And so the conflict that's arising with the scribes and Pharisees really centers on what was lawful on the Sabbath day. And that word just really means what's lawful, what is permissible, what's allowed, what are you allowed to do on the Sabbath day? Now the Pharisees, as we've seen, they were very strict in keeping the outward commandments of the law. They were very strict in keeping the traditions that were really added to the law, that were, that were used as a fence to kind of keep people from even getting near to breaking the law. But the Pharisees, although they were very strict and legalistic with their rules, they, they really didn't know God. And they really didn't love other people. They were concerned really about the fine details of the law, but they forgot about the two great commandments to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. And so these Pharisees are really religious hypocrites, and they're they're very strict in keeping the law, keeping the traditions, but they really don't know God or love others. And really all religious hypocrisy is of this sort. The rules from different groups, kind of from group to group vary. So different groups have different rules, but the principles are really the same. In in religious hypocrisy, the heart is not sincere. And so the Pharisees, they're not asking this question because they want to learn. Look back at verse 10. They asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? And that's really what hypocrisy wants to do. It wants to accuse others and find fault with them. And so they wanted to accuse Jesus of breaking the Sabbath, of working on the Sabbath day. And again, that's what hypocrites love to do. They love to find fault with others. They love to kind of exalt themselves and look down upon others. Now, what's noteworthy here, I think, is that that everyone knows that Jesus has the power to heal this man's hand. It's it's not a question of whether Jesus is able to heal on the Sabbath or not. It's only, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Everyone in Galilee knows Jesus' healing power at this point. 
Now, when it comes to this question, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath, the Jews already had decided this question. And they decided that healing was permissible, but only when life was at risk. And so if it wasn't life-threatening, they would wait until later or until after the Sabbath to treat the sick or to treat the wounded. And so they wouldn't, they wouldn't heal you. They wouldn't, they wouldn't treat you. They wouldn't care for you on the Sabbath. They would say, just wait it out one more day and we'll take care of you then. And so the doctors and everyone really didn't work on the Sabbath. And really the only exception was in, uh, if somebody was giving birth, uh, apparently they would, for that, they, they, they wouldn't make them wait the next day. Of course, there's not really a, a chance to, to make that kind of wait another day. And so that was permissible on the Sabbath, but other kind of healing things were not allowed on the Sabbath. There was no treatment on the Sabbath unless it was uh, life-threatening. And so in the case of a man with a withered hand, the, the, the ruling would have been that such a thing could wait until the next day. But they wanted to accuse Jesus, and so they, they asked this question, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And Jesus replies, and he teaches them really the point of the Sabbath, but there's, there's one more thing that I wanted to say that I missed here, and, and that is when, when the Pharisees would ask this question, they, they really were... Um, they, there was no category for faith healing in that day. The only person that ever was going around healing people was the Lord Jesus Christ. And so really when they're, when they kind of made this ruling about what's permissible on the Sabbath as far as healing, they're really thinking about doctors and nurses and, and kind of like home remedy treatments that they were doing. It, it, they really had no category for healing. And so is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Jesus replies and he teaches them the point of the Sabbath. And so Jesus is going to tell them what is permissible on the Sabbath. And and that's going to be number two, the point in verses 11 and 12, the point of the Sabbath. In verse 11, Jesus said to them, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? And so Jesus starts with what, what was apparently common practice. And Jesus, in, in good Jewish style, he answers a question with a question, a question that really expects a strong negative answer. This is kind of, this is one of those who from among you questions, which expects a, again, a strong negative, no way it would never happen response. But the only thing here is that it, it actually switches to a, a yes way because there's a negative in front of it. And so, who would not take hold of the sheep and lift it out? And the answer is, is that nobody would not do that, which another way to say that would be that everybody would lift their sheep and take it out of a pit on the Sabbath. And so Jesus assumes that the Pharisees would rescue a sheep out of a pit on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees don't reply back. They don't dispute the point. And so I think we can take it for granted that yes, everyone would rescue a sheep that fell into a pit, or that word also means a ditch on the Sabbath day. Now, a sheep or a, uh, a sheep in a pit or a sheep in a ditch might not die if you left it until the next day, depending on the, the condition of the pit or whatever. But common practice apparently was to rescue this sheep. And so Jesus continues in verse 12 of how much more value is a man than a sheep? 
of how much more value is a man than a sheep. And this is a a lesser to the greater argument. How much more? And so if you would rescue a sheep, which is, which is not as valuable, how much more should you rescue a man? Even if that is on the Sabbath day. See, there's a difference between a man and a sheep. That's what that more valuable word means. It means a difference. One is superior to the other. And so there's a difference between a man and a sheep. And the difference really goes back to creation, where man and man alone was made in the image of God. Mankind was made in the image of God, male and female. And we can see that in Genesis chapter 1. And so let's just go back to Genesis 1. Let's look at verses 26 and 27 again. Really foundational verses, very well known. But Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And so we see that we were created in the image of God, both male and female. And that's what makes us more valuable than the animals. We differ or we are superior to them. We are we are the ones that God has given dominion over the whole of creation because God created us in his likeness to represent him in this world. Now, our generation may be very unsure of this truth that we are more valuable or that we are superior to sheep, but we in the church, we shouldn't be surprised by this. We, I think we know this, right? Jesus wasn't confused about this. This is the, the third time in this gospel that Jesus said that we are more valuable than the animals. And so Matthew 6.26, Jesus says, look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And of course, that question expects an answer, of course, that we're more valuable than they are. Or in Matthew 10.29, Jesus says, are not two sparrows sold for a penny. And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father, but even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Verse 31 says, fear not, therefore you are more, you are of more value than many sparrows. And then again, in our text of how much more value is a man than a sheep. And that's really Jesus's argument there. We are more valuable, and therefore, if you would rescue a sheep on the Sabbath, how much more should you heal a man? And he draws out this principle then in the rest of verse 12. He says in verse 12 again, So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. It is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And so according to the Lord of the Sabbath, Jesus Christ, it's lawful, it's permissible to do good on the Sabbath day. Now this ruling that Jesus gives on the Sabbath is really exactly the opposite of what the Pharisees would have, of of the way that the Pharisees would have reasoned. They see, they didn't want anyone to feel free to decide what they could or could not do on the Sabbath. And so they restricted everything and they made rules about every little thing so that nobody would even come close 
to breaking the Sabbath so that nobody would even come close to working on the Sabbath. And they kind of called this fencing the law. They made these, these rules around the law so that you couldn't even get near to the law in order to break it. But when Jesus kind of makes this proclamation, he kind of opens the gate to the fence. And he says it's, it's lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Now, this is a positive statement. But typically, the law is negative, right? When you think about the law, it's typically negative. It tells you what you cannot do. But Jesus now says, this is what you can do on the Sabbath. The law says what cannot be done. And remember, in this case, the Sabbath law was, you shall not do any work, Exodus 12 or Exodus 20, verse 10. You shall not do any work. But Jesus says, doing good is permissible. And so don't work, but do do good. And healing is good. And therefore, according to Jesus, it could be done on the Sabbath day. Now, I think as we kind of think about that a little bit and what Jesus is doing here, it really shows us the difference between the, the righteousness of a true disciple and that of the Pharisees or that of a hypocrite or that of a false convert. You see, the unconverted, they're, they're still in the flesh. They are flesh and at heart, they love sin. Even if they keep away from the grosser sins of our, of our society, at heart, an unconverted person loves sin. And so even if they're religious and moral, they have to be held back, right? A person like that has to be restrained because of the corruptions of their heart. And so you can't just tell them to do good. You need to keep them back from their evil hearts. And so if you would tell them just that you're free to do good, they're going to, of course, because they're sinful, they're going to go forth and do sin. They're going to use that as an excuse to run headlong into sin. Whereas a regenerated person, a truly saved person is different. At heart, they really hate sin and love righteousness. They've been transformed by God's grace in their heart. And so they love God and they want to do good to their neighbor. Now, even us as, as regenerate people, truly born again people, we still have the flesh. We are still, the flesh is still in us. And so we need to be watchful in regards to sin. But there's really a big difference in the way that we think and the way that we reason. And such a one, a truly saved person can be told to do good and their heart isn't really to abuse the rule in order that they might sin. Their heart is really to actually do good and honor God with their lives. And so I hope you can see the difference and and know the difference between that. There's a fundamental difference between somebody who is truly born again and somebody who isn't. One loves God and righteousness and delights in it. The other is an enemy to God and delights in sin, even if they live an outwardly moral life. One is looking for loopholes so that they can enjoy their sin. The other is looking to live a life pleasing to God from the heart. And that's really the difference. And Jesus' Sabbath day ruling fits, really fits himself and fits those who are truly converted. It is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And when we think about it, The so-called work that Jesus does on the Sabbath really wasn't at all what the law was forbidding. Um, Jesus was resting. Jesus was focused on God and he did good when he had the opportunity. All he really does is speak a word, extend your hand. And the man does that and his hand is healed. And we're going to see that next. And we're going to call this the proof. The proof of Jesus's authority. And, And he demonstrates himself to be the Lord of the Sabbath. And so if you're taking notes, number three, the proof in verse 13, then he said to the man, 
stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. Now the focus here is on Jesus and what he can do. The focus really isn't on the man. We, we really don't know much about this man. We don't even really, aren't even sure exactly what his condition is. He's got a withered hand or arm. The focus isn't on this man. It's not on this man's faith. We don't even know if the man had any faith. Jesus commanded the man to stretch out his hand. And if it was his whole arm that was withered, Jesus is commanding him to do something that's really impossible. But if it was only his hand that was withered, then perhaps all he's doing is kind of stretching out his arm. Matthew never goes into details that that maybe we'd like to know in these healings. He just kind of gives us the facts of what happened. The man stretched out his arm or his hand and he was instantly healed. And Matthew uses three words to describe this healing to emphasize the completeness and the miraculousness of this healing. First, he says that it was restored. And that means to put something back to an earlier good state or condition. And by itself, that word would have been enough to show that Jesus fully restored the man's hand. But then Matthew adds another words, it's healthy. And this means just physically well, or, or sometimes used of things, sometimes often it's used of doctrine, and we say it's sound doctrine. It's, it's used of things for soundness or undamaged things, or physically it means that, that it's well or healthy. And so the man's hand was cured, it was made well, it was healed, and then Matthew adds more and he says, thirdly, he says, as the other, or like the other. His hand was restored as healthy as his other hand, and so really it was a, it was a perfect healing that the Lord did. And it would have been amazing to see if you, you know, you imagine if we were here today and somebody came in with a, a, a visibly, obviously deformed hand and Jesus was here and just, it was just cured instantly. It would have been an amazing thing to see. This hand was dried up. It was deformed, likely very obvious. And now everyone in front of the whole synagogue sees this hand miraculously restored, healthy, just like the other one. And so Jesus then shows that he has the power to heal on the Sabbath. He showed himself to be, again, the Lord of the Sabbath. And really the only other explanation, and and really this won't even work either, the only other explanation for this is that Jesus is a liar and a deceiver. That he's somehow empowered by Satan to lead people astray. But when you look at his words and his righteousness, there's really no room for that explanation. Jesus was a sinless man. Jesus taught his disciples to do good and to glorify God. He transformed the lives of his followers, turning them from sin and the power of Satan, turning them from darkness to light. And so Jesus was no liar. He was, he was no lunatic. He is the Lord. And that's really the only other option. Jesus showed it time and time again, including here by healing this man in the synagogue on the Sabbath. And so Jesus has shown himself to be Lord of the Sabbath. And ultimately for us, the proof continues when he rose himself from the dead. Jesus died and rose again. And he sent his disciples to proclaim this message and through them, Jesus built his church. And he wrote this down for us in the New Testament so that we would have the word of God, which testifies to us that Jesus is Lord, that he is God the Son. In this word, we have, we know who God is. It tells us that God is holy. And it tells us who Jesus is, that he is Lord, that he is God and man, the only mediator between God and men, that he is our Savior. That he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
And Jesus is our only hope for forgiveness. He's the only way that we can be reconciled to a holy God. A God who hates sin and punishes sinners. And in this passage, Jesus has proved himself to be the Lord. And so the question then for us is, how do we respond to Jesus' claim? How do you respond to Jesus' claim? Is Jesus your Lord? Is he your master? Is he the master of your life? Have you accepted him as Lord, as Lord of the Sabbath? He is Lord of all. He is God. And he's a merciful God, and we see the contrast between Jesus and the Pharisees here. The Pharisees, they're more concerned about crossing the line from rest into work than they are about this man with the withered hand. They don't seem to give a hoot about the man with the withered hand. They were just concerned if Jesus broke the Sabbath rules. They were more concerned about helping sheep than they were with helping men. In the words of Matthew 12 and verse 7, where, where God is, is quoted from Hosea 6, 6, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. The, the Pharisees didn't know this mercy. They didn't, they just were concerned with the sacrifice. But Jesus is merciful. Jesus was more concerned with mercy than with outward legalism. And he, and he will show mercy, but only if we rightly receive him as our Lord and our God. There's, there's really no other option for us. It's either we accept Jesus as Lord or we're going to be punished by him forever in hell. And so we must come to him as we saw in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 and 29, where Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. And so we must come to Jesus, we must learn his ways, we must follow him, we must take his yoke upon us and submit our lives to him. That's really our only hope in this world. And that's really the only right response to Jesus Christ and the claims that he's making. The only proper response is to come to him. And if we don't come to him, we are committing a sin, we are sinning against God, we are offending God if we don't come to Christ. And that's exactly what the Pharisees did. And we're going to see that fourthly in, in, in what I called the plot here. The Pharisees, they, instead of responding to Jesus as Lord, instead of being confirmed in their faith and saying, wow, you really are the Lord of the Sabbath. We're going to follow you and become your disciples. Instead of that, they plot to destroy Jesus Christ, which really means they, they plot to put him to death. And again, we see that in verse 14. But the Pharisees went out. And conspired against him how to destroy him. And here we see the hypocrisy of the Pharisees again. They were pretending to wonder about the lawfulness of healing on the Sabbath. So that they could accuse Jesus. And Jesus showed them that they would have helped a sheep on the Sabbath. And they don't seem to have an answer for that. But when Jesus does good on the Sabbath. And again, by no means does he do any kind of work that we can tell. He just talks to the man and tells him to extend his arm. But the, the minute that Jesus does good on the Sabbath, the Pharisees go out and plot to kill him. And they seem so upset on the surface. They're so mad that Jesus broke the fourth commandment that they immediately go out and plan how they might kill him, which is a violation of the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. Now, last week, we, we did see that the penalty for breaking the Sabbath was death. Remember Exodus 31, 14. It says, you shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. 
Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days shall work be done, but on the seventh day it is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. But that is not what, what the Pharisees are doing, although it might kind of relate to this, this working on the Sabbath and the, the charge of, or the penalty of death. Again, they, they weren't really putting people to death in that day for breaking the Sabbath. But what the Pharisees are doing here is not the kind of proper means to, um, to put somebody to trial for breaking the Sabbath. They, 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 really what they do here is they storm out of the synagogue service. I think right at that moment when Jesus tells the man to stretch out his hand and his hand is healed, they, they, they turn out and they storm out of their synagogue and they go and they plot to destroy Jesus, which, which again most likely means that they're going to put him to death. Now, in reality, they have no proof that he broke the Sabbath. And that's why later on, when Jesus actually was tried and put to death, nobody brings up this charge of him breaking the Sabbath because there's really no proof that Jesus broke the Sabbath. The reality here is that they won't accept Jesus' claim as Lord and they won't come to him and they won't bow down to him. they're, They're like the people in that parable that say, we will not have this man reign over us. And so they're going to get rid of Jesus in an evil and an ungodly way. And they're going to kill him. They're going to kill God the Son for doing good on the Sabbath. And when you think about that, you just got to ask yourself, how do you think that's going to go on Judgment Day? We tried to kill you for doing good on the Sabbath. Now, we're not going to have that same opportunity to reject Jesus in the way that the Pharisees did. You know, the Son of God is not here physically in the flesh that we might put him to death. But in God's eye, I I just want you to know it's really the highest offense to reject Jesus Christ. He is God's beloved Son. And God sent his beloved Son to save his people from their sins. And he offers salvation to all who will come to him. But if you don't come... John 3.18 says that you are condemned already because you have not believed in the name of the only Son of God. He is the only way that we can escape from the condemnation that we are all under. And there's really no greater offense to God than to refuse or reject or ignore or deny or in some other way refuse to come to His Son, Jesus Christ. And so the Pharisees, they had seen good on the Sabbath They saw Jesus confirm that he was the greatest good, that he was God himself, but they refused the good and instead they plotted evil on the Sabbath. And so I think the lesson for us today is don't be like them. Instead, come to Jesus Christ, believe him when he tells you who he is, that he is the Lord and God and take him as your Lord and Savior. And if you're here today and, and you haven't come to Christ, I would just invite you to come to Jesus Christ and be saved. Again, the only way that you can be forgiven and reconciled with the Holy God. And if you're here today and you have come to Jesus Christ, then you are blessed because the Lord uh, has, has done good for you. Just like he did good on that day for that man and healing him. He healed you of your sin. He forgave you of your sin. He reconciled you to God and he himself, Christ himself, is now your greatest and highest good. And so you are indeed blessed. 
Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for our time in your word. And Father, we're going to sing now about your son and the the fountain that we have in him that washes away all our sins. We thank you for our Savior, Jesus Christ, and we pray that that you would bless the, the ending of our service. We pray you'd bless the Lord's Supper. In Jesus' name, amen.